the daily comments for August the 19th. We'll look at this very famous and disgraceful story uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 11 of David and Bathsheba. And then we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, where Paul castigates the Corinthians for how they were um, uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper. 2 Samuel chapter 11. You'll see that we have skipped some things. First um, and Second Samuel are one book. And these books are about the rise of David and the house of David. And the whole of First and Second Samuel is about this. And it reaches its crescendo in chapter 7 of Second Samuel, where God issues this tremendous promise regarding the throne of David and the dynasty of David lasting forever. Everything before this has been leading up to this. Now, the next three chapters after this, we come to what, what you might call the sort of the golden age of David. And these uh, chapters, which we skip over, show David in various battles, defeating Israel's enemies left and right, extending the territory of Israel, and just basically consolidating power, not only for himself, but for Israel as well. You will see that the golden age of David following this promise of God only lasts three chapters, and then we get to chapter 11, which begins uh, in this way. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. So right away we realize that uh, David's growing a little soft here. He's sending his commander. He's no longer going out with the uh, uh, with the army. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So right away we, we are clued in that things aren't right, that David is not uh, the David that we used to know, the rough and ready warrior, um, but he's grown kind of soft. We're going to see that he's not only kind of soft, uh, but he's also become rather self-indulgent and willful as well. Well, I mean, as the story uh, unfolds, it's a very familiar story. But when you think about this, this man, after God's own heart, uh, exhibits a great deal of wickedness here. And, and not just wickedness in the sense of weakness. He sees uh, uh, Bathsheba and, and he's tempted by her. It's not that. It goes well beyond that. It's, it's all quite premeditated and calculating and quite horrible. We see that um, David not only sees Bathsheba, but he inquires who she is and arranges to have her uh, transported to him in the palace where he sleeps with her. So David is willful and self-indulgent. Turns out David is also very, very unlucky because then he receives word sometime later from uh, from Bathsheba that she's pregnant. This is a problem for David because everybody knew what David had done, but Uriah didn't know, her husband. Uriah's been on the battlefield. And the thing is now, now Uriah could not be the one who got Bathsheba pregnant because he's been out on the battlefield where David should have been. So now the thing is going to be known. So David becomes conniving and calculating to see what he might do and conspires further with our lovely friend Joab, who he, he commands, Joab, the commander of the army, commands to send Uriah back uh, and on some feigned, uh, you know, messenger or something like that with some uh, message to the king. And when Uriah gets there, uh, David chats with him about how the battle is going and invites him to stay and go home and essentially spend the night with his wife. Well, David is assuming that Uriah would do what David would do and did do in this circumstance. 
But uh, Uriah was uh, of, of a finer character than what David is showing right now. He refuses to go home. Uh, basically, the idea is that, uh, you know, the God's armies are out in the field. And uh, I'm, this is part of a military duty that I'm here. And I'm not going to take advantage and go home to my wife. Well, this is a problem for David because he needs him to go home to his wife so that nobody will know that, that the pregnancy was David's and not Uriah's. You see, that's the whole point. David invites uh, uh, Uriah to stay another night. This time he gets him drunk, figuring that, I mean, David's surely figuring that if he, you know, if he won't do what I would have done, uh, maybe he will do, uh, if he's drunk, what I would have done and go home and sleep with his wife. But Uriah apparently has too much character even to do that. Even drunk, he knows better. Uh, uh, he knows well what his duty is. And at this point, of course, poor Uriah, is um, his fate is sealed. This time, now, uh, we go from, from uh, you know, bad to a little, little bit comedic to positively dark. Now David sends Uriah with, with the message to Joab himself that will seal his fate. Joab is to arrange the armies in such a fashion and then withdraw at a strategic time that Uriah would be killed in battle and nobody will know. And so that's exactly what happens. And then you have this very cynical uh, deal where, you know, uh, David comforts, uh, tell, you know, tells the messenger to go comfort Joab. It's okay. Things like this happen. Um, you know, the battle devours now one and now another. You can see how David is justifying this in his own head. Yeah, Uriah died. Yeah, I had him killed. But he might have died anyway. Lots of people are dying out there. Um, and so, uh, you know, <laughs> the messenger sent back to Joab telling him everything's fine. I told David uh, what you told me to tell him about Uriah. And then it says uh, David had Bathsheba brought to the palace and brought to him. And uh, then the text ends very, very ominously. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It sure did. And we're going to see that much of the rest of David's reign is going to be very much tainted by what David has done here and the consequences uh, of, uh, of this uh, turning from the Lord. So we'll talk more about that beginning tomorrow. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17, a very important and very famous part of the scripture. Uh, Paul previously uh, had already talked about the body and blood of the Lord and participating in the body and blood of the Lord and in worship. And he did that in the context of idolatry. This was in chapter 10. That is to say, you can't drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons at the same time. You can't sit at the Lord's table and partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons at the same time. Flee from idolatry. Do you want to arouse the jealousy of God? So that's how he had dealt with this before. Now, in this context, he's going to deal with the, uh, with the body and blood of the Lord, same body and blood of the Lord, but now from the point of view of sacrilege, not idolatry, but sacrilege. What is sacrilege? Sacrilege is to profane a holy thing, to treat it as common or to abuse it or misuse it in some way. So what we have at the centerpiece of this passage is the body and blood of the Lord, which are holy. And the meal which Jesus instituted, the Lord's Supper, is a holy meal. It is not an ordinary meal. Now, Paul begins uh, by, by saying in verse 23, um, uh, well, um, in verse 17, he says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Um, and, and then, uh, but then he goes on, 
uh, to say, you know, he, he, he comments on the divisions that are among the people, um, the divisions that make this gathering of worship around these holy things seem to be quite an ordinary and not a holy thing uh, uh, at, at all. He says, um, uh, you know, when you come together in verse 20, it says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Well, no, actually, it is the Lord's Supper that you eat. And that's the problem. What he means is that you are not acting like this is the Lord's Supper. You're acting like this is just a, a casual meal in somebody's backyard, their barbecue or going to McDonald's or something like that. That's why he says, you know, um, in, in eating, each one of you goes with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And then verse 22, what? <laughs> what? Exclamation point. He can't believe what he's hearing. This is not how he taught them about the Lord's Supper. By allowing these class distinctions, and that's what he's first off getting at. You are allowing the normal class distinctions that divide the rich and the poor, the free and the slave and so forth, that is common in ordinary society to infiltrate how you do worship also. The matter is made worse because these, the, the worship is happening in the house of a Christian. There were no churches at that time. And if a Christian had a house big enough to, to have worship, they were, they were probably a rich Christian. And so what, what he's talking about is some are getting to sit inside, some are getting served first, the others are sitting in the courtyard, they're getting served last if there's anything left and so forth. And he said, all of this is to profane what is really a very holy coming together of Christ's people to receive his body and blood. He then gives a, a, a um, he recounts the institution of the Lord's Supper. For what I see from the Lord, I also passed on to you that on the night when he was betrayed, etc. This is probably our earliest account of the Lord's Supper, even though you have it in, in the Gospels. Um, the Gospels were probably written after this. So Paul is giving us probably our earliest account. And then he goes on to discuss the consequences of this. Look, you guys are profaning something holy. Now, we know that in the Old Testament, sometimes that meant the ground opened up and swallowed people. Sometimes fire came out of the tabernacle. Uh, sometimes diseases of various kinds and boils and death of all sorts of things happened. When, and remember Uzzah who reached out and touched the ark of God, all of these are acts of sacrilege, whether intentional or accidental. And Paul is saying, that's what you're doing here. And that's why some of you are weak and sick and some of you have even fallen asleep. He means died. Now, he uses the word judge. He said, if we would judge ourselves, he talks about, you know, let, let a man examine himself and so eat of the body and blood. Okay, make sure you know what you're doing and recognize that this is a holy thing that you are approaching. Judge yourself. If we judge ourselves, then we will not be judged by the Lord. What's happening here with the weak and sick and all of that is we are being judged by the Lord. Even if you don't get sick and weak, if you profane the sacrament, you are incurring judgment from the Lord. If we judge ourselves and made the proper corrections, we would not be judged by the Lord. If we're judged by the Lord, then what this means is he's going to discipline us. That might mean we get weak. That might mean we get sick. That might mean our consciences are, are pricked. Who knows what the Lord might do? But if he judges us, it means he's disciplining us in order to save us from ourselves, okay? And he's judging us so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Condemned means the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you. So if we 
do not eat and drink of the body and blood of the Lord in a worthy way that is respecting its holiness and what it is, the body and blood of the Lord, then we incur judgment. And we incur judgment as an act of mercy on God so that he can discipline us so that we do not get condemned. In other words, become total unbelievers and are thrust out of the kingdom uh, altogether. All right, so I've gone on too long. These readings are just making it impossible to get inside 10 minutes. I'll try to get myself more responsible as we go forward.